Welcome to the Conversations About Consultation podcast. I'm Zara Ahmed and you're here listening to some of the conversations that myself and my co-host Dr. Emily Kanade, Jessica Rowley and Emily Crosby have had with guests from around the world about consultation and psychology. We all have a keen interest in consultation and hope that this podcast offers a platform to discuss different views about the topic and future directions for consultation. We hope that you enjoy listening to these episodes and if you'd like any further information or are interested in being a guest, please feel free to let us know or get in touch via email or Twitter. On today's episode, we are so lucky to have with us Dr. Lauren Kaiser, PhD and a nationally certified school psychologist. Currently, Dr. Kaiser is an associate professor and program coordinator for the school psychology graduate program in the psychology department at Millersville University near Lancaster in the United States. She received a bachelor's degree in elementary education and earned her master's and doctorate degrees in school psychology from the University of Maryland, College Park. Prior to her faculty assignment, Dr. Kaiser worked in a variety of professional capacities within urban, suburban, and rural schools over the past 20 years across eight states in the US. She served as an elementary school teacher, school psychologist, and a trainer, consultant, or coach of instructional consultation teams and the double check and bullying classroom checkup programs. Her teaching and research interests are school consultation, teacher coaching, consultation training, and implementation science to help promote safe, supportive, equitable, and instructionally matched school environments for all students. Lauren serves on the editorial board for the Journal of Educational and Psychological Consultation. We are so lucky to have Lauren with us today and we really hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we did recording it. Lauren, it's so lovely to have you here today. Um, I was wondering if you could start with telling us a little bit about your journey, uh, yourself, uh, and becoming a school psychologist. Thank you. It's so exciting to be here today. I'm a big fan of this podcast and the fact that you're bringing attention to consultation, which I feel in the world of school psychology or educational psychology is often given short change because people often feel we we already know how to do that. This is something that just comes naturally. If we know how to talk to people, we are already consulting. Mm-hmm. But it is a real science and a, and a practice. So I, I appreciate you giving it that space and um, that gravity. Um, so I'm really happy to be here and a little bit about me. I came into um, the field of school psychology, which in the States is, I believe what I'm learning is the same as educational psychology internationally. And so in school psychology, I came to that by way of first being a teacher. Uh, I actually was not a psychology um, undergraduate major and um, I wanted to teach and I wanted to work with with kids directly. And, and you know, in my young idealistic self, I wanted to make a difference. And, and so I was very excited in the university setting to that, how collaborative that process was. You take your blocked methods classes with a lot of the same students. You have supervisory teachers that you're working with. And so you're constantly collaborating around your practice and getting feedback and improving practice. And then your first year of teaching, you go out and it's nothing like that. Uh, you're on your own in the classroom, really with no feedback or supervision. You you are on a team, but the teams are largely, you know, we, we meet to do basic day-to-day functions like planning the field trip and maybe deciding um, which spelling list we're going to use that week or, you know, things of that nature. And it really isn't talking about pedagogy. And, and in my first few years, I found that very difficult. Um, I would go to team meetings and maybe would want to talk about a student that was having difficulty and maybe another teacher 
would say, well, she's not a problem in my class. And I would immediately feel that bad for have brought, you know, some sense of shame for having brought that up and being concerned that, you know, what does that mean about, about me? Uh, and realizing maybe I don't bring those kinds of problems to this team, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so that was something I reflected on and thought, you know, that doesn't really help us all improve. And, and I also worked on a team of teachers who were all amazing women and amazing instructors in their own right. They were all very different. One was a constructivist and didn't like to plan lessons in advance because she liked to build off of the students learning that day and their questions that they brought um, in class and their curiosities. And another was as traditional direct instruction as, as they come. And the other two were somewhere on my team or in the middle. And so they didn't really like to get in the middle of that debate. And so they stayed quiet in our team meetings and as a new teacher, I didn't know where I fit. I was fascinated by that dynamic, but it was, it just meant that we just didn't talk about instruction in teams. And so then in my early development, I sought out folks that would talk to me about instruction. And I found out it was the school psychologist in my school or the school counselor. Um, both of those folks had been well-trained in consultation. And so they met with me individually one-on-one to talk about student concerns I had, but they helped me reflect on my instruction. And that's what I found was most powerful was helping me have that time to actually think about what I wanted to do differently because I knew that the student wasn't the problem. I knew it was something with me in my early development as a teacher, but I couldn't figure out what to do differently on my own. And so it was through their help and support that I grew professionally. And I just felt like that's something we needed more of in the schools. And I could see that very clearly as part of the problem in the educational system as we have it is we have a lot of systems to support kids, but not a lot to support teachers. And so my work brought me to I was just fortunate that I was in um, Howard County, Maryland, which is a school district in Maryland that's right near the University of Maryland College Park, which at the time was where Dr. Sylvia Rosenfield was. And this was in the early 90s. I'm dating myself here, but that was right probably at the height of where she was translating her work on the instructional consultation model into a team's model and thinking about how do we scale that up beyond just the school psychologists and how do we train teachers to consult with each other um, and other school-based professionals. And so I just happened to be in a school where this was being implemented. And that's why my school psychologist and school counselor were so well-trained in that model. And then uh, they asked me to join the team. And even though I was a new teacher, I thought, I don't know how to help other people yet. I'm still learning, but I thought this is a collaborative process and you don't have to have all the answers. You just have to be able to be interested in working with each other and to know a problem solving process for how to do that. And um, I went to the training and I learned how to become uh, an instructional consultant, which they called a case manager on that team process. And in my uh, role as a case manager, I was an active team member. I consulted with other teachers and I just realized I was very passionate about that work. And I saw that we needed more of that. And I, when I learned that other schools didn't do it like that, and that wasn't the natural part of school psychology practice, I wanted to learn how to transform that. And uh, so then I decided to go to my doctoral training at the University of Maryland and was very fortunate to study right um, along with Sylvia Rosenfield um, and then to specialize with her in her lab for instructional consultation teams as a graduate assistant. And then later that became part of my professional practice. But that was kind of what brought me to the field. Mm, that's amazing. Because I mean, amazing. One of the questions we were going to ask you, because we were interested in, in terms of our understanding that you had actually been a teacher before you did your school psych training, which I know is not necessarily always the roots it's definitely not always the roots in the united kingdom as well over the last few years the kind of model of training has changed i think i was really struck by what you just said there lauren about those experiences potentially of, of it must be me that i'm i'm not very good at teaching if no other teacher is having a difficulty it, it must be me and i was just wondering about is there anything that you would notice now reflecting back on when 
you did go to speak with the school counselor or the school psychologist, what was it that made the difference that it felt it's okay for me to talk about this here? Or yeah, what what was something of what went on that made that process possibly feel just a little bit different? Yeah, that's a great question. And a really important one, because I think that's something we can facilitate in schools too. You know, it's kind of like my belief going in was not that I should be ashamed to ask for help, but that that actually is a sign of, of strength. Um, that professional collegiality and that working together makes us better was my belief. But the fact that that wasn't shared as part of the school norm was what made it difficult mm-hmm. and, and feel more shameful. And so, you know, and there were systems for resources in the district besides the school psychologist and school counselor, like there was reading specialists and curriculum specialists. And I had even suggested maybe going to one of them and folks on my team said, oh no, if you do that, they'll, they'll think that, you know, you're a bad teacher. I mean, there was these beliefs in the school that were really prevalent about asking for help and help seeking and what that meant. But so, yeah, I think the school psychologist and school counselor, just by nature of serving as a school consultant and being there one-on-one in your classroom, affirming that it's okay to ask for help, affirming that they didn't have the answers themselves. I, I think both of the folks that I worked with in the early year were very humble in their approach and very collaborative. They didn't necessarily come across as if they knew better and they gave me space to to think and reflect um, without making me feel like there was a right answer that I should have already known or to feel bad about asking. And um, I can just remember back some of the reflective questions that they asked at the time. I don't think I knew that they were doing it while they were doing it. But as soon as I I got trained in consultation and trained specifically in the reflective skills of consultation, Mm. I realized, you know, Mm. they would ask questions like, well, what happened before that? Um, Or what was happening at that time? And I would stop and think, I'm like, oh, you know, I would have these aha moments about what I was doing in that interaction. And that was what caused me like the next day, I would go try something different as a teacher. (laughs) I do laugh thinking back to because I know that caused them new and different problems, because then the next time they came back, I had already solved some of the original problems I brought to them. But I think that's kind of the what Shine talks about um, in his process consultation work as being a process intervention and, and mm-hmm. the power of a collaborative, reflective, consultative approach. Yeah, I was also wondering, actually, that thing to Shine in terms of if on some level, one person within the consultation believes, oh, I have to have the answers, I should know whether that's the consultant or the consultee, how that can very easily twist the nature of the relationship from what you know he describes the idea of when in doubt share the problem the fact that you can actually operate together and and how much our feelings sometimes I guess get in the way because of maybe these cultural norms or beliefs or ideas about what it might mean to ask for help or to give help and how important that kind of element of it is to pay attention to. Yes, I agree. And I can see as a trainer now, because currently I'm a, a trainer um, in consultation at uh, Millersville University in Pennsylvania in the United States. And I get the opportunity to teach consultation class. And in my class, I have students take cases. Um, it, they take it at one case in the semester and they're recording their work with a teacher around an academic or behavioral concern. And then they, you know, complete process logs mm-hmm. and reflection logs on their work. Uh, and I watch the recordings and get feedback, but that's often something I see as a big barrier for students. They feel pressure right away that they should have the right answer and feeling kind of one down in that relationship. They they work harder to try to assert some expertise. And in some ways it's, I, you know, I just try to help them free themselves of that because when they really truly go in as novices, very powerful. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it can be much more effective than when someone who is in a novice situation is nervous about that and is trying to 
work hard to find a, a right answer or a solution that often backfires. Yeah, just that recognition of what, what it might mean. And also, I think kind of your self-awareness about what it might mean if somebody you're in one of those positions, how easily the, the self element of you can also kind of affect. Like, actually, I want to I want to fix it. I want them to think I'm really good. I want to be helpful. I want people to like me. And, and how much that is that self-awareness is is really crucial in taking up that that professional role. I don't know whether Zara, given you're out there now in in schools and in a child and adolescent mental health service, whether you'd recognize that element of self-awareness and the importance in in the consultation. Yeah, I mean, definitely. As you were talking, Lauren, I was thinking like I'm not new in terms of training, but I've just qualified. And I kind of feel new again, if that makes sense. But it feels like there's more pressure to have the answers and kind of be a good educational psychologist because I'm qualified now and how I think once you have qualified it's like you have to go back to the beginning of remembering to think back to the process rather than needing to come in from an expert position now that you're qualified so Mm -hmm. definitely have been feeling that pressure lately. (laughs) That's interesting if you think about it that is comes in these different peaks and valleys that a student as a graduate student, you might feel that pressure first. And then maybe by internship, you've kind of eased into this more comfort about not having the answers, but people still give you a little of that credit for being an intern and a grad mm-hmm. student. So they don't expect you to have all the answers yet. And they're kind of more patient with you as a practice consultee. But then when you are early career, there might be a new different per, you know, perception of needing to be an expert just because you have the official role and a little less of that maybe perceived credit from the consultee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One thing we did want to ask you about was that kind of some of the earlier work around teacher satisfaction with instructional consultation. Before we get into that, I guess, because we wanted to ask you a little bit about why you got interested in that area, but because some people uh, may be less familiar with the idea of instructional consultation, could you just mention something very briefly about maybe core features of IC or anything that would be particularly relevant that if somebody wanted to know what made instructional consultation perhaps the same or different as another model, if there's something a little bit that you touch on in relation to that? Sure. So instructional consultation was first developed by Sylvia Rosenfield, who I referred to earlier, and she has a textbook in 1987, if any is interested in reading the full book, which I highly recommend. Um, And there are several more brief um, summary chapters, too, for anyone who is interested in best practices in school psychology series and in the research, uh, the handbook of research on school consultation. Um, It's Mm. also got a nice summary chapter of all the research there. But, you know, just the in a nutshell, it is a problem solving, a collaborative reflective, consultee-centered, problem-solving, stage-based model. And so, and really with the idea, it's called instructional consultation. I find that many students coming to it have a misconception, or maybe practitioners as well, that because it's called instructional consultation, that it focuses only on academic problem-solving. And I, I think that that actually is kind of maybe missing part of the most important point, the feature. Sylvia's work was originally developed building off of behavioral consultation um, from uh, Bergen and others. And so it does have a really strong behavioral problem-solving element to it. Mm. Still, you know, developing uh, operational definitions of either the behavior, and it could be an actual behavior, um, or it could be an academic skill as a behavior. But then it, but then you're, and you're doing assessment, whether that be observation or instructional curriculum-based assessment that 
you're doing that to kind of narrow down and analyze the conditions under which that behavior, and again, either it's a, a behavior or an academic learning skill is happening. And so it's this concept of instructional match is what makes it instructional consultation is that these are behaviors that are happening in a classroom context. And so helping a teacher reflect on the, the actual skill that needs to be changed mm -hmm. again academically or behaviorally what is what are the students entry level skills um, what can they do in that regard um, looking at it from a strengths-based perspective mm -hmm. too and then looking at in the context there's a, a triangle heuristic that's used where you have the student on one uh, angle and you have the instruction and the task on the other two angles and so that concept is helping the teacher reflect around those ecological, instructional and task variables that relate to that student's skill development or their behavior in the classroom. And so that there's a process by which in communication you're using to reflect around all of those different variables, but then you're also guiding your assessment data around those variables as well. So whether that be using what I call an instructional assessment, that's the work of Ed Gickling and others, you know, curriculum-based assessment, maybe complementing that with curriculum-based measurement for baseline and progress monitoring, but, you know, really collecting some data that's going to help inform um, what is the instructional or behavioral priority, understanding it from a functional perspective, whether that means behavior function or learning function, instructional mm -hmm. hierarchy, mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, coming up with a baseline and short-term goals, and then developing an intervention plan with the teacher. Now with the intervention plan, that's really thinking about instruction more broadly than necessarily a, just a specific strategy or uh, evidence-based program. It's really thinking, having them you know, rethink their instruction to make the match in the classroom and to make an instructional match. And so they might be thinking then at that point, the consultant's role is helping them not only think about this student, but maybe other students in the classroom that could benefit or um, what they might need to change with their whole class instruction or curriculum to make this match and to think about the instructional challenges they face in differentiating instruction um, and then helping them articulate that into a plan, implement mm -hmm. that in the classroom and collect data um, weekly to give that performance feedback visually or verbally as they mm -hmm. go to kind of troubleshoot implementation that we barriers that we know will exist mm -hmm. uh, throughout that process. And then once that work is done and the teacher's feeling confident um, and the student has met the goals, the consultant and the teacher can close their work together or they can cycle back with a new goal and continue that work. One thing I was wondering about is sometimes the, the, the challenge in, in different models of consultation is too great an emphasis on within child only kind of hypotheses. So whether there's a learning difficulty or a social, emotional, mental health need or whatever. And I guess I love the instructional triangle where you shift out emphasis. It's not just on the child alone, but you're also thinking about what's the task like and how to analyze the task. And you're also thinking about instruction in the broadest sense. And given all of your expertise and kind of knowledge over the years, Lauren, do you feel that kind of model of IC permits people to just broaden out their thinking about why difficulties may be emerging and, and not consistently lend themselves to, well, there must be something wrong with this child. Yeah, that's a great question. And so I think I mentioned that IC is based off of behavioral consultation, but it's also really strongly based off of consultee-centered consultation, shines process consultation. So it draws from a lot of the relational literature. And so I think that the degree to which we can focus on what we would call kind of a broken match, a broken mismatch, right? Versus a broken child model, which is like what's wrong with the child, a student deficit mm -hmm. model 
has a lot to do with consultant skill in that relational process and that reflective process, because you could still follow the steps of problem solving very easily if you're not attuned to the relational aspects, teacher objectivity, you know, mm-hmm. if you're not really listening carefully for those opportunities to talk about instruction and to talk about task, you could um, lead the teacher, you know, down a path also, um, uh, you know, looking at what are the student deficits, hearing that, framing that, you know, looking at lack of progress. Um, so that could still happen with a lack of fidelity to the model. And, and back to your point earlier about self-reflection and self-awareness. And so that's where I do think, you know, especially early on when you're developing this stage, it is important to record, self-reflect, get feedback, because that's the part that I think could be done incorrectly. And then at the end, we would either be blaming the student for not learning or, or behaving um, or the teacher, right. For being resistant. And I think that the, our, our skill as con- consultants really is the piece that I think is makes the process more effective mm-hmm. or less effective. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing I really love about it is, you know, in, in Sylvia and, and Danny Newman's book, the building competence and they talk about this admiring the problem and undeniably the challenges faced by by children and young people today that the teachers are trying to support with when we're thinking about teachers as consultees, some of them are, you know, unimaginable in in scale, and there are difficulties both in the classroom, in the playground, or lunchtime, kind of transition between home and school, school and home, in the community at home, and how you can, I think, understandably, become quite overwhelmed with how many different challenges and difficulties there may be. And there's something quite, I think, quite empowering about my own very novice understanding of, of IC is that it allows the teacher to feel, well, yes, there may be all of those difficulties and it's not to deny reality, but I as a teacher have got expertise and skill in who this child is in the context of my classroom in the tasks I'm trying to teach in how I approach the kind of relationship or, you know, instruction. Yeah, I'm just wondering, do you feel it? It has a kind of an empowering dimension, maybe for for teachers, because it's focusing them back on, yes, of course, there are all these other issues. And yet you still can be able to affect small positive change in in your classroom or in your school. Yeah, I think absolutely, especially again, if it's if it's done well um, and if, you know, the consultant is really mindful to that and hears those opportunities and and gives space for that. And I think Sylvia's early work, a lot of the um, and and Danny. Newman um, work with the, the book that you just mentioned, the school consultation, there's a lot of focus on the relational aspects and the collaborative communication skills, the use of reflection skills, like paraphrasing and clarifying what had just been said and reflecting feelings. Um, I think all of that is really important. And I think, you know, some of my other work with coaching has brought me to the world of motivational interviewing too, which is a lot of those same skills. They're reflective skills, mm-hmm. the use of, of questions, but in there there's affirmations too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that using affirmations really, you know, strategically and effectively can be helpful to really have the teacher hear. So a lot of times, you know, as we know from Kaplan's work, that it can be a lack of knowledge, a lack of skill, a lack of objectivity, but also a lack of confidence. And so teachers, you know, as you mentioned, there are right now, you know, being a teacher is, is hard always, has always been hard, um, but it's, I think now even more so. And I think we have some data to support that teacher stress and burnout is at an all time high. And so, so yeah, things, uh, this can be a process that can help affirm mm-hmm. the hard work that they're doing, the the values that they bring. I, I have 
found a lot of folks to be frustrated with teachers at time and see them as resistant. But I, you know, I know that the literature frames that as realism uh, often. Uh, and uh, also for them, they see natural barriers and to mm-hmm. affirm that those are real challenges that they're facing and to be heard and to give space to think through those challenges is, I think, very important. And to me, one of the values of this of this process. Yeah. Um, but it takes a consultant, again, who knows that and who can see that way rather than to maybe also see the teacher from a deficit perspective, because mm-hmm. that, you know, like I, I've never met a teacher that doesn't truly care about their students and doesn't want to be a good teacher and make a difference. I think sometimes it sounds different when they're complaining, maybe in a meeting or venting to you. But at the heart of it, there's a belief that they do want to make right by students and they do want to help them. They're just getting stuck in some of their ways and yeah. and frustrated by the day-to-day challenges. And so I think if we can hear that and join with that and you know reflect that back, that value, that's where we can see some real progress and movement. Mm. But still you're that kind of really important caveat of using a model well. It's not the model alone or independently. There's something about the consulting skill in being able to take on board the all of the skills, knowledge, values, and kind of fidelity and kind of adherence to that. That's really helpful just to hear a little bit more about, about instructional consultation. So just to come back to that, some of the work that you've done around teacher satisfaction with that model of consultation yeah why did you get interested in that work originally was there a a particular thing that had happened that had led you to think oh gosh this is something I'd really like to explore a little bit more yeah so I think early on you know given my pathway into the field and um, into consultation I was really interested in what are some of the consultee centered outcomes or variables of consultation research at the time a lot of the research was more focused on student outcomes and so I wanted to know you know what do teachers find this process helpful? What do they actually learn from it? So that I was really mostly interested in what do teachers learn or take away from this? If the, if the indirect service is intended to improve, you know, teacher performance, enhance and improve teacher performance in order to help students, you know, I wanted to know that piece, like, are are we actually doing that? And so, um, but that's a harder a very elusive construct to measure, especially in a model like uh, instructional consultation, where each teacher could be learning something very different from their consultant and from that interaction. It's hard to quantify. I think in the behavioral literature, we have some studies, only a smaller handful, but more on um, very specific aspects of teacher change, like if they would implement behavior-specific praise to a higher degree, if that was what they worked on with a behavioral consultant or a coach. That's easy to chart and measure and to see. We can make change with that. If a teacher is using better assessment practices, if they are thinking about their student from a strengths-based perspective, you know, those things are harder to to capture and might differ depending on what the focus of that consultation was. So I, I was challenged as a young graduate student too, with how, how do I measure this and how do I capture this? So, you know, at the time there was easier access to, we were assessing acceptability um, in all of our IC teams, instructional consultation teams schools. So I, I figured I would analyze that data first and look at this, what the descriptive data were telling us as a first entry. So yes, one of my um, first studies from my master's thesis was on teacher satisfaction. Um, and then that led me into my dissertation work, which was really trying to look at how do we measure teacher change. But of course, methodologically, that was a challenge. And I tried to do that via a survey. The survey wasn't really as sensitive to the changes because sometimes teachers don't know what they don't know. And so um, if you're using kind of a pre-test, post-test model, they actually sometimes do worse on the post-test because they are becoming more reflective 
than they were when they started. So there were some of those types of challenges along the way with trying to find a measure that could capture true teacher change in the absence of, at the time, having a good observation measure or one specific dependent variable to observe. I was just wondering as well, like what kind of from that research, what were your kind of main takeaways in terms of teacher satisfaction? How, how, what did you kind of find? By and large, teachers were satisfied uh, with consultation. Teachers who engaged in it found it to be acceptable and were satisfied and would be more willing to consult again in the future. Um, You know, a limitation of that, of course, is kind of selection bias, right? So if I'm going to volunteer for consultation and participate in it, probably going to be satisfied with it. Uh, Maybe a little justification of effort uh, going on there too, from a cognitive dissonance standpoint, maybe also a little social desirability too, right? I don't want to necessarily rate the consultant who just worked with me so hard negatively. If that someone on their team is going to review this data, Um, all those data were anonymous, but those were some of the limitations of that work. But I think by and large, you know, anecdotally too, and from, you know, other qualitative indicators, it does seem that teachers are really, um, once they have consultation that's done with fidelity, they're going to be much more satisfied with that process and get a lot out of it. And I think that's what we saw too. In my um, thesis, there was a correlation with fidelity to the model and satisfaction. And so I think that was, and then of course, what I also tried to look at from their qualitative comments um, using some coding strategies was what did they actually learn from it? And so, you know, most of the teachers would report that they would be more likely to use some strategies learned with similar students in the future. Qualitatively, they reported learning more problem-solving strategies. Um, And some of the specific strategies that were taught in their instructional consultation teams were also being um, implemented and delivered. Things like a folding in strategy or incremental rehearsal, um, strategies for maybe increasing word recognition or math fact fluency. Some of those were strategies that maybe their team members had been taught as evidence-based strategies and were kind of helping to deliver in the school via the consultation. And those showed up in their self-report of what they learned and what they were able to apply with others. It's fascinating. Yeah. Another question, I guess we had that, you know, you had been involved in that kind of line of inquiry for for a really long period of time and you know this work that you did with Sylvia and others but you had this um I think it was a 2009 study with quite a from our perspective as epistemologies and ontologies can be very different and kind of a lot of the time because of the scale of the doctoral research projects that some of the the trainees like Zara that have finished our program at, at the Tavistock they aren't really in a position to conduct huge, big 274 teachers, which I was like, wow, that's amazing. So many people showing teachers were highly satisfied with consultation, that they felt the kind of outcomes had met or exceeded their expectations, a change in confidence and kind of that point you made before about linking back to triggers as to why you might have sought consultation in the first place. If you don't really believe in yourself that you can affect a positive change, the fact that consultation could have this this impact. It just felt like such an important data set and really important evidence. Since then, I suppose, or, or even in that study, is there other work that you've done or other things that you, even looking back on it now, Lauren, you'd say, yeah, you know what, if I was going to say these two or three things to take away, these would be the bits that I would really want people to attend to when they're thinking about satisfaction and impact of consultation on the consultee. Yes, sure. Well, first, I think, yeah, you're hitting a very important point is the, the number, yeah, 274 teachers was quite a lot. And I think that speaks to uh, Sylvia Rosenfield and her colleague Todd Gravois' work on scaling up consultation, the work of instructional consultation teams, which um, that came out of their book in 1996, which is also a great resource, which talks about, you know, how 
how do you train a team of school members in consultation so that they can all now serve as consultants to each other, as opposed to being a lone school psychologist trying to do that work um, in your school building alone. And so they um, had implemented that model in, uh, at this point, I'm losing count because there were so many, seven states, I believe, hundreds of schools. It, you know, gradually grew over time, but they have um, written about this in several articles too, for anyone who is interested. This scaling up is not only doable, but as Sylvia would say, uh, it's doneable. Uh, and so that is, I think, very rare. And I think it's it's something I'd love to see brought back because I'm not seeing it to that scale as much anymore. I think in the in these states, we've seen a shift from uh, trying to implement consultative services and coaching services like that to more team-based decisions. We've gone kind of back on that pendulum. And so I would love to see some of that brought back. Uh, and we do have evidence that you can do it and you can do it great um, satisfaction. And you're right, it does affect teacher confidence. My study was really descriptive in nature of those teachers. So it wasn't a randomized control study. It was These were all teachers that were already participating in school teams. So there wasn't randomized control necessarily in that study. It was just at the end of every school year, part of the program evaluation of an instructional consultation team model is to survey the acceptability of the team, of the teachers who had worked with the team, and then to give that feedback to the team so that they can try to improve upon their own practices with that feedback. Among other data sets too, there are other pieces of you know fidelity measures that are involved in that team model. But so that was my initial research. But then through that, we began working on developing a randomized control trial. And so Sylvia and Todd um, got a, um, an Institute of Educational Sciences grant, which provided funding for them to randomize uh, 17 schools. Oh, it's 34 schools total. So 17 received instructional consultation teams training and implemented that model and 17 did not uh, business as usual. And so from that study, and that was from a 2014 study, uh, Vu was the lead author um, on a large team of folks who were doing this work. And they looked at the outcomes of IC teams. And that study did show an increase, um, a significant increase in teacher efficacy for those teachers that had consulted with the team or that were in a building, in a school building with IC teams, because it was a school level analysis. They didn't see um, changes in job satisfaction, which we were predicting, but there was some evidence of changes in collaboration in general in the building um, in that study as well. And so, you know, we, some of those pieces that we think consultation affects, we do have some evidence that, that it does that it increases confidence and it increases collaboration. We didn't uh, we didn't see the changes in instructional practices, but again, I think that comes to some of the methodological um, issues that I described earlier. Um, we started to see student level effects in that study um, by the end of the, it was a three-year grant, but by the end of the third year, we could see student um, outcomes at the school level were increasing, just not to significant effects yet. Um, but just like with any school change, <laughs> it needs to have a long-term approach, a long view. And the grant was three years. And so at that point, then I do believe that we didn't really get to investigate what would have happened in year five, for example, if that had really begun to, you know, been embedded in the schools. Yeah, that's honestly like so amazing. And just kind of hearing how seeking those feedback is like just I think sometimes when you're being a consultant it's really difficult to know if you're making a difference and knowing if there's if any change is being created but yeah I guess for all consultants we often wonder how we go about seeking service users views and you know how to demonstrate the impact of consultation uh, and in this instance teachers as consultees and we thought if you had any top tips for consultants about how to go around seeking these views and feedback so I think along the way 
right? I think that certainly you can ask um, one of the motivational interviewing skills is um, elicit, provide, elicit. So if you're ever going to offer information, you ask, provide, and then ask again. So I think if you're using that process well throughout, you know, what does this mean for you? How do you feel about that? What are your thoughts? You're kind of already gaining feedback along the way, you're emphasizing empowering the teacher with their autonomy to change or to give you feedback if they think something isn't going to work. But then if you're talking about more summative feedback, right, I think in the closure session of your consultative work, an instructional consultation actually has that as a specific stage, um, a closure stage where you talk about the relationship at that stage and the closing of that working relationship, leaving the door open for future, um, you know, requests for assistance. But at that stage, and um, Newman and Rosenfield in their school consultation book have really great questions that a consultee can ask in that stage um, for feedback to specifically ask, you know, what have you learned from this process? What feedback do you have for me? I mean, I think you can get all of that in the one-on-one process, even if you don't have an acceptability survey necessarily um, to give out um, for more summative quantitative feedback. That's something that's important, I think, for consultants to do. But if you wanted to give more quantitative feedback, if you had several consultees in a school building that you're working with, there are examples of measures that are out there in the 2009 um, study that we talked about earlier that I led that was part of my thesis, the um, satisfaction surveys in the appendix. You know, I certainly would um, be fine with people adapting it for their own use uh, in consultation cases. And I encourage my students to do that. There's some jargon in there uh, referring specifically to IC teams. But, you know, if you replace that with, you know, consultation and consultant consultee language, um, I think that could be very transportable. I've done a lot of work also with coaching too, specifically the classroom checkup model and the mm-hmm. uh, by Rinky and Herman and, and others. And then also the double check version of that same model, which looks at helping teachers advance their cultural proficiency or their, you know, culturally responsive teaching practice. Um, And there's also a great article by um, Elise Pass and others in 2016 about the acceptability of that model. And um, I think in that, the method section of that, that article, there's some great items that you could use if you wanted to kind of create your own survey of your consultation or your coaching work. Some really uh, very generous in terms of the use of your own work, but also some really exciting opportunities. I was also just even thinking about how the point you made earlier, Lauren, about fidelity to like doing it well, Mm because I'm thinking about things like shines process consultancy and the idea of process inquiry and if you are using his model well and you shift back into not asking maybe a diagnostic question or a you know confrontation inquiry but you shift back to a process inquiry and are we talking about what you want to talk about still how does this feel for you are we still working on what you want to work on I guess there are ways in which you can continually seek feedback from the consultee all the way through the process because even at that point for the consultee to say, actually, we've ended up down this sort of alleyway and really where I wanted to be was here. It really is a, such a helpful bit of feedback for the consultant to go, actually, yeah, okay, maybe I've gone down my own avenue or this is not the right time. And I can kind of come back a little bit. And that, you know, what really strikes me and what you're saying is about kind of a a diverse range of measures and a different, you know, multiple way rather than there just being a single one way in which you could. I guess what I am struck by, though, is the importance that you should. The idea that you just sort of ditch the idea of is this making a difference for my consultee or is it having an impact on the client ultimately? I think it's really apparent that it is important, essential to know but how you might go about doing that, you have this sort of 
range of options and maybe flexibility in, in what people could choose to do that would work for them. Absolutely. I think, yeah, listening along the way, providing those opportunities. And you, if you're also wanting to kind of listen to what's the impact, I mean, I think that's where if you do have the opportunity to record your work and to listen back to it, you can hear some of those, what Ingrid Highlander would talk about turning points, yeah. Yeah. You know, those teacher aha moments. And sometimes that's easy to miss when you're so mm -hmm. focused on what's your next step. And I, I have a, one of my students right now is working on a fabulous case. She's so reflective and working so closely with the teacher. It's not a clear cut case of what, what to do next. And, mm -hmm. and I think as a student, she may be a little bit nervous about, you know, having a certain outcome for the class project. And I try to free her of that um, because what she's doing quite naturally in the process is seeking feedback, checking in with the teacher. And, and what she's also doing, I can hear the teacher is having these aha moments, like maybe I should assess more, you know, because, uh, you know, this is a teacher who may not be using a lot of formative assessment um, or direct instruction in the approach that they're taking. And mm -hmm. um, and so you can hear this evidence of these turnings where she's like, mm -hmm. oh, I wonder how I would look for that. How could I get that information? And those kinds yeah. of things I hear as the feedback to the consultant that you are giving that space and you are encouraging that growth, mm -hmm. you know, stop and listen and relish in that a little bit, you know, yeah. I think it's kind of the helpfulness of having it recorded. And that bit about training and motivational interviewing is so, so old and in, in kind of drug treatment as opposed to education. But that point about the person identifying for themselves, maybe I could do, it's so different to being told, advised, suggested, recommended. The idea that you yourself are identifying and thinking, actually, I can change. There are things that I could do differently. But the power that comes when it feels like it's coming from you through that relationship with the other person but yeah there's something quite distinctive about it being yours as opposed to coming from the outside maybe not when you're quite ready for it or yeah you're in a particular phase of, of change we're just talking about training actually which is really helpful because I I guess one of the things that well another area that Zara and I wanted to ask you about was a recent paper with about novice consultants and their responses to a consultee's request to assistance because I think inevitably there's the sort of first meeting 20 minutes in and somebody turns to you as the consultant says so what should I do and how might you know whoever that might be yeah it's such a fascinating area to to research you're just wondering about if you would say something about maybe some of the findings in that and that kind of prior to training in this idea that when you are starting out as a consultant that perhaps sometimes you might prematurely kind of get into offering hypotheses you might quite prematurely get into well why don't you try this or this is a really oh, I've had a case like this before I've done these things yeah did you have any particular interpretations of why you felt that that might have happened particularly for people who are relatively new to consultancy I, mean, I think a lot of that is kind of our implicit culture of, and I think Shine talks about this really expertly in this humble inquiry book where he talks about this culture of like do and tell right and so I think consultant often when folks are coming into a consultation role they view themselves as having to have an idea and having to fix it and um and that is some of the work of the um, mi literature too is that we have and that's motivational interviewing um, miller and rolnick originally and you, as you said that started with clinical treatment yeah. right? but thinking about how we can use it in schools you know a lot of times is we have a, a writing reflex we want to rush in and and write a wrong or, or fix something we see a teacher's coming to us for help and so and and time is really our biggest resource in school and so we want to use that as efficiently as possible so giving a quick answer and a quick fix feels 
like the ideal when, as we've talked about before, that actually isn't, it may cause people to dig in more to status quo thinking and, um, and behavior and, and get more of that, what we call resistance up. Um, but I think that consultants have to have direct instruction, novice consultants to the alternative and, and a lot of training to kind of trust the process because we've been taught and reinforced for that behavior for so long that, you know, to kind of unlearn it takes a lot of work and conscious effort. So that's why the work of the deliberate practice that Danny Newman conceptualized, and he was the primary investigator on that work is really fascinating to me because it's taking a, a training process that comes from clinical psychology um, and, you know, really brings it over to the consultation world. Yeah. Where you get yeah. these little micro skills, like instead of offering information, let's try just clarifying what was just said, or let's try mm -hmm. reflecting that back and, you know, having um, trainees um, do that in a kind of simulated way with feedback does really cause them to stop and think about what their initial kind of gut reaction would be and how mm -hmm. they would typically respond. And then to kind of unlearn with, you know, continued practice and feedback, um, a new approach. Yeah. I, I, my students love it. They love, um, I use that deliberate practice, micro skills training. We use, um, a platform called Flip uh, to you know have these little videos where they watch a video of a teacher and then they respond. Uh, it's a simulated session based on real situations in, in classrooms mm -hmm. from the transcripts that we had. We kind of reworked them to make them you know not identifiable and you know slightly different, but we wanted to still have a real flavor to it. But we have a, a teacher actor acting out these scenarios and then students watch it and record their response. And if it doesn't meet the definition of that micro skill, they re-record it um, and then they get feedback back and then they'll get a new scenario and continue to practice. And, um, and the students all really, they say, this is helping me. I, I'm really getting it now. And, and you can see the progression. Mm -hmm. The study shows that the progression actually increases um, the randomized controlled um, version of the study shows that students will increase their collaborative communication skills and their efficacy using this approach. But qualitatively as a trainer, I can see it um, happening, which is yeah. really quite exciting yeah. to see that. Yeah. Because I was thinking about some of the stuff that we spoke about before about that self-awareness and when maybe it's it's not there as much as it could be or we're precluded from learning about ourselves in our role and we you know that idea about well people will like me more or they'll think I'm more effective or I'll have a greater impact if I just if they say what should I do I immediately give an answer and I was also thinking about the kind of wider systems pressures in schools and community contexts whereby Again, the challenges do create that sense of, gosh, I've got to give something helpful and useful and, and, and really, really quickly. I guess one of the other things I'm wondering about the speed at which you can offer your own view and how much maybe it precludes you from actually being able to truly listen and listen enough and listen even a little bit more again before you start to get, despite the idea of what should I do now, tell me what to do, is some reassurance that staying with listening and staying particularly in those early stages of trying to find out what might be going on or what it might be like to be a person and the importance of effective listening skills and then I suppose the other bit I was thinking about again links back to what you made previously about cultural responsivity and about you know the worldview that you may have grown up with the kind of cultural heritage of the people that you you that you hold or the people that you're working with and also kind of around elements of maybe power or privilege I'm thinking about say big age differences perhaps or big levels of experience difference or membership of minoritized or excluded groups and how that idea of I've got to really prove myself because of all these biases and stereotypes and, and sort of discrimination that sits within the system would would those be things that you would recognize Lauren 
and, and Zara, I guess, about all of them and other factors kind of contributing to the prematurity in getting to, well, now we're going to do something. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's a, a really excellent an important question that I don't know we have a very good empirical answer for yet, but but certainly, yes, all those aspects of power and privilege and perception play into, I would think, um, your own self-perception as a consultant, right? And then that would affect how you respond, the, the, the way you think others perceive you. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. Um, I think that those are all really important dynamics that, you know, as a trainer, I try to have my students self-reflect on um, Colette Ingram's work on the cultural constellation is something I kind of help try to bring into their awareness and have them think more consciously about some of those variables that could be affecting the working relationship. And, you know, I think that's hard sometimes for folks to kind of bring to attention and be really intentional about. And so I think then that's, again, the role of supervision, why that's really so important, because I think that's where you can bring that up, have those conversations, reflect on what that dynamic might be for that relationship. Mm -hmm. I just think about the significance, particularly of supervision and qualified practice, where you are out of the training environment, but are quite reliant. Like, where's your learning relationship happening once you're you're qualified? And I guess so. I was just wondering about for you and and kind of just your the sort of experience of colleagues. Is there an explicit link made between consultation practice and supervision? So are people kind of really encouraged to bring and explicitly name bringing your cons? Because you know the idea of you, there's so many different functions of the psychologist. You could be assessing. You could be observing. You could be training yeah just your experience of that connection between how do I continue to keep knowing myself and what might be going on and the systems around me and the link between consultation and and supervision I think it's a difficult one because when you start off and you are new again and you're in a new service I think there's a lot of getting your head around new systems new hierarchies new schools and a lot of supervision for me anyway at the beginning is taken up with making sense of all of that I mean in the service I work with they have something called uh, like a peer consultation observation so you're paired up with somebody who is also at a similar level so I'm paired up with someone who is a newly qualified like me and we observe each other's consultation practices which is quite cool I haven't done it yet (laughs) but I'm looking forward to it which I think will be quite interesting and I was actually thinking when I was reading uh, your paper, Lauren, that it would be really cool if kind of the observation form or, or, or kind of structure is kind of linked to those processes that you were bringing mm. out. You know, are you asking double barreled questions? It's quite funny. I was really stuck when I was reading that paper on this because I was like, I bet you I asked so many double barreled <laughs> questions because you want to get all the information out of your brain and you have such little time to try and, you know, explore things. I still do that a lot too. When I'm modeling for students, I'm like, don't do that. That's <laughs> it's a hard one to unlearn I think yeah but I think Emma as well what you were saying about um you know that self-enroll and kind of you know kind of making sure that you have that space to recognize because there is a lot of you know intersectional factors that we have to think about in terms of power and privilege culture and kind of for people who are new to the role as well that transition and what that brings up for them and you know like you said maybe it is about quick jumping quickly to solutions because you're still in that process of trying to prove yourself as a new person or as somebody from an ethnic minority and they all do play in factor and I think it's really important to take that to spaces where you can, whether it's supervision, whether it's, you know, peer observation things. (laughs) I'm really fascinated by that peer 
feedback about consultation that, that you described. One of the challenges I, I see as a trainer here um, in the States is that often I train students in consultation and they really value the work and they get quite skilled at it. And then they go out into their schools for field placements and none of their supervisors are doing formal consultation. They're all doing informal consultation or team-based consultation, but very few are using something like a model like instructional consultation or the classroom checkup or, you know, any like structured model where there would be weekly meetings with a teacher following a, a stage-based process. And so that's often a lot of dissonance for students is like, well, we're, we're taking all this time to learn this and no one's doing it. And then to your point, Emma, no one's holding them necessarily either accountable from a, a social support perspective. I mean, where there's not like a supervision structure, not an expectation that you'll do consultation that you'll reflect upon it. So I'm curious to hear more that sounds like that is part of the work there. Um, but maybe, I don't know, I'm just curious to hear how that is. There was a neat study that I don't, um, about from DeFao at all, um, recently just came out about general education teachers' use of consultation, that what they found was that general ed teachers primarily spend a lot more time in informal consultation or team consultation, um, very little in formal consultation. And if they do, it, with the school psychologist, it's relatively in, infrequent. Uh, yeah. And so that didn't surprise me, given some of kind of what I've seen in the, in the field, but it does seem to be, you know, how do we overcome that challenge. So I'd love to hear if that's done differently elsewhere. I mean, I'm, I'm going to obviously let Zara talk because she's much more interesting things to say. But I am wondering as well, Lauren, about the difference between context, perhaps, in that there are the majority of educational psychologists work for in the public sector. So there would be a local educational psychology service that would service the local patch of early years, primary, secondary, and further education, um, educational provisions in that local area. And those services here, uh, not everybody, but some would say our service is delivered through consultation. So it's not like necessarily a menu or suite of options that teachers would go, actually, I'd like this from my school psychologist, or I'd like that. The service itself sets itself up as everything we do is or we deliver our model through consultation and through that consultation process, then other work may may emerge. So there was that one maybe contextual difference that might might lend itself and then the model of consultation that is is shared in that service and how people may make use of that. And obviously there's different models. So does everybody in the same service share the same model or how do you get there? And then inevitably, I think with anything like this, I guess there's always the sort of Argyris and Schoen espouse theory, theory in use about, you know, what we might say we do and then what that might be experienced and whether that might also be playing a role as well, a little bit inevitably, if services are very busy, as they all are, lots of vacancies, rates of kind of requests for involvement being very high, whether the kind of more statutory functions that the role here holds would, would obviously need to be prioritized in the first instance and, you know, how that might work. But yeah, sorry, I interrupted there. And Zara, please do say. No, it's fine. I was also going to say, like, contextually, that sometimes as much as we would like to have ongoing consultations with a teacher and think about kind of mm. not problems but kind of issues over time and change in practice it's not always possible so when I say that we've got a peer consultation observation it might not be for that type of consultation it could be um, and like you said Emma everybody works quite differently so for example I might do something called uh, educational psychology like drop-in for teachers to come in and we do like one-off consultations um, or it could be uh, joint parent and school consultations which while listening to this episode I'm thinking like, actually, maybe it should be separate. I don't know. There are some people who work 
in either way sometimes they do a teacher consultation on their own sometimes they do parent and school together but yeah I guess for the observation it would be dependent on what skill you'd want to work on so for example I might and probably will now go away and try and make a new observation form related to some of the skills that you mentioned and I might be like actually I really want to make sure that I'm not jumping too soon to problem solving and and giving solutions and it might be for a one-off consultation um, or it might be for one of my uh, like an EP drop-in session so there might be a couple but yeah I haven't I haven't done it yet I'll keep you updated when I eventually do it yeah so thinking about how do you use those process skills in whatever form of collaboration you're doing yeah, yeah. the feedback that you all are giving to each other which is still mm-hmm. um, could be very valuable and not necessarily I don't think part of standard practice where we are in psych services oftentimes I don't know if we do that as much giving each other feedback on our process skills in meetings for example I think Mel Collier Leak was we recently recorded an episode with her and she one of the things she mentioned was um, Elizabeth McKinney's paper on the culture of niceness and kind of the majority white women type. And I, I think it, it probably is true to say that UK EP services, at least the ones I'm aware of, probably majority white women. And that point linking Lauren to feedback and how perhaps easy, if you don't set it up properly and contract really clearly and be very explicit with one another, I think structure can be really helpful at that point. That I mean, I know Zara, somebody would say to you, that was amazing and fantastic because I've, I've seen you do your concert and I know how good you are, but I can see how easily you could slip into everything was amazing everything you did was great that teacher is really resistant or that parent was being really difficult or so and the importance if you are going to try and learn about yourself and the work for the purposes of improvement that you have a relationship that's good enough that you will take on board both the the good parts of, of what people notice as well as being able to hear a little bit about what maybe you can't see but inevitably I wonder whether our sort of broader culture could possibly impact on that a little bit in the same way that it impacts on on so many other areas about just that mindfulness because I, I suppose that was one thing Lauren to come back to is that and correct us if if we're wrong but in in that paper or related research that you've done our understanding was that you had this sort of so before any training happens, you might notice this premature kind of jumping to a solution. And then after a typical consultation course, sometimes student consult- consultants would still respond exactly the same as still jumping quite quickly as they would have done beforehand. And that was the bit that seemed to have made the sort of positive difference was specific training in communication and, and kind of relational skills. Is, is that, were we right in kind of understanding the difference there? Because I was kind of thinking, gosh, training and consultation must have made a huge, I was just wondering when you, when you guys were reviewing the data, how did you feel when you noticed that sort of, that difference? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's really the power of that deliberate practice was yeah. that in addition to, um, well, when we compare that to consultation and training, business as usual, that makes a difference in helping slow down the offering of information, changing, you know, the double-barreled responses, that type of thing. So I was surprised by that too, um, that that was that significant of a difference. Um, But I also think that that maybe speaks to what is business as usual in consultation training. And what I don't know that we have a good sense of from that study is what was being done in all those programs that we were using as control. And and from what we do know from some of the literature on consultation training is that there's such varied practices. Not everyone requires their students to take a, um, a training case and to video record it and transcribe it and analyze the communication and, and get that kind of supervised feedback. Um, that's a pretty extensive lift, I think, for students mm-hmm. and for faculty. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that that's done 
Well, I know it's not from some of the descriptive research that um, Hazel and Newman and others have done. And so I, I think that's part of the issue too, right? So there might be some other training practices that trainers are using that make that difference to help that shift, uh, but that just might not be done across all of our programs. Um, like one of the things I do in um, classes that I borrowed from others as well too, from uh, Grace Jones, uh, a practitioner, psychologist that during her um, dissertation, she did a simulation, a problem identification and analysis simulation where she looked at novice consultants um, work when they were given a simulated teacher scenario. Um, and in the teacher scenario, the teacher's describing a student and kind of mostly talking about the behavioral issues. If you listen carefully, there's some issues around underpinning breathing issues and things. And so the consultant, a more skilled advanced consultant who's listening carefully will pick up on that and, mm -hmm. and reflect on that. But others might just quickly give like a behavioral strategy. And so I usually start my class with that simulation for all students um, so that they can have that experience before getting the training. So they can see that they make some of those missteps. They have, there's a simulation rating instrument, a rubric that was part of the scoring of that dissertation. But I actually give them that rubric after they do the simulation to self-rate um, and then give them a the feedback. But one of the items on the rubric is around rushing to solution, for example. And so I don't know, I don't have any comparison to see like if I did that in some classes and not in others. Um, that would be a good research study, um, but to see if that could, that simple practice of doing it once and done and having an aha uh, makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah. I will say, I do feel like I see immediately after that in the student's next practice, I see them improving what they're focusing on, not just the student or not just solutions, but now thinking about how do I clarify instruction? How do I clarify the, the task requirements. Um, but, you know, I also do more explicit instruction around that in class too. So it's hard to know what's the active ingredient. What, yeah. What's making the impress. Yeah. Conscious of the timeline and, and how much time we've, we've taken from you already. Enjoying it. So thank you so much. No, us too. I, do you have that show Desert Island Discs? This kind of, you know, like what music you would take away if you were living on a desert island. There was one thing that you would recommend to people to read about consultation that changed your thinking or has had a really significant impact impact on your own practice? This question has given me a lot of stress and anxiety leading up to this recording because I, uh, <laughs> one, find it very hard to pick just one. And so I was thinking, and I also thought like, gosh, some of the other folks who have been on have said such profound, like nice other reading besides what they named. And I'm like, how did they have time to read a whole other book? <laughs> I'm always trying to keep up on the most current research um, or rereading things that, you know, from our consultation literature. So to pick just one, I, I know it's hard for me to say, obviously, instructional consultation and instructional consultation teams are top on my all-time favorites, as well as the Newman and Rosenfield school consultation text that you mentioned. And I also really, um, the motivational interviewing for class management by Rinky um, and others, that one's top on my list too, because I think that I, over my time, became much more intentional about using motivational interviewing as part of my instructional consultation practice. Those are kind of like my like manuals, the guidebooks that I feel like I need mm -hmm. to have, but those aren't really fun, like outside readings. I don't know. For outside readings, I was trying to, I, I don't think this is necessarily my favorite book of all times, but I just, one thing that I just listened to, I spent a lot of time listening to podcasts like this and, um, and audiobooks because I have an hour and 15 minute commute. So I listened to uh, something that's on the New York 
Time bestseller right now called You Are Not Listening by Kate Murphy. So mm-hmm. I figured the audience here might be interested in that as well. I was hoping a little bit more for more how-to, um, mm-hmm. skill-based like process, like how you could be a better listener. But it is a really interesting just take on, you know, in general, how we're not good listeners and the importance of listening and other like maybe, you know, bigger picture societal and cultural factors that play into our lack of listening. So it was a fun read and um, I would definitely recommend it. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I also, I wonder sometimes whether there's the idea, there must be some magic skill that consultation is and how often you come back to, no, it's about a relationship. It's not maybe more magic than that or newer I mean that is magic in and of itself but listening is maybe criminally undervalued and perhaps not spending enough time just recognizing honing and developing that skill with the pressure of trying to kind of introduce or develop other things yeah I think we could all do with a lot more listening and being listened to right now um can I say a huge big Thank you. This has been one of the most interesting research. I'm like, yeah, I, I literally have got scribbled notes everywhere. It's been such a pleasure to well, speak thank to you. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine. I would love to keep talking and interest yeah. with you about your training practices as well and hear more about how consultation is done in other places. Thank, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you.